And uh, we'll be back in there today. You know, last week, we, we in this great chapter, we, we laid out the background for the study of the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, we talked about verses 10, 11, and 12, where it says uh, that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And we talked about in this particular chapter, 14 and 15, we know is dealing with the aspect of how we get along with each other. One of the things that we need to know and understand is the fact that the judgment seat of Christ directly is in relationship to everything we do and what we do as it impacts other people. We've been talking about the whole Bible being built around two days. We got through the issue of special days in Romans chapter 14. And we talked about the aspect of the day of the Lord, which is the second coming of Christ. That's to the nation of Israel. And then the day of Jesus Christ, and that's to the church, you and I. And I showed you how that the whole Bible is wrapped around those two components. God's day and Christ's day. Then I gave you a, a great little, uh, little concept that... Uh, really uh, breaks a, a number of Bible doctrines down into that little sinner, son, and serpent. How easy that makes uh, our relationship with God and understanding uh, the judgments in the Bible as they relate to us and in all the other things that God does. Without a doubt, the most important day of our lives as a child of God is, is, the, is the judgment seat of Christ. And I told you last week that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to lay out every aspect of this day. Uh, as it's laid out in Romans chapter 14 and then uh, throughout uh, the whole Bible. And, and let me start by saying this. You know, people ask me many, many times, why does God have a judgment seat of Christ? And there's, there's a number of reasons why there is a judgment seat of Christ. But I guess the, the main reason is, is because one of the sub-themes of the Bible, now we know that the theme of the Bible, the thing that the Bible is built around is the second coming of Christ. Everything in that Bible points to the day that is God's day when his son sits down on the throne in Jerusalem. We know that as the day of the Lord. The day of Jesus Christ for you and for me, which is the judgment seat of Christ, the rapture of the church, there's many aspects to that. But when you break it down to the lowest common denominator, uh, the judgment seat of Christ is basically where God rewards those of us who, once we are saved, simply finds out what God wants us to do in our life and then does it. You know, it's a, it's a simple fact. And most people in the day and age that we live in, they don't understand this. God saved you for a purpose. There's something that he wants you to accomplish with your life. Now, the devil's job is to deceive you. The devil's job is to counterfeit the phony for the real. The devil's job is to, is to bombard you with misinformation or put you in situations that lead you to confusion. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a situation where he wants to make everything complicated. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth as he writes to seven of the churches there in his time and his day. And he talks about the greatest fear that he has for the church. And I must say that that fear that Paul had all the way back at the church at Corinth is the same fear that I have for the church today uh, and anybody who really understands what's going on. And that's where he says, I would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. He says, for I am jealous over you, <coughs> talking to the church, 
For I am jealous over you <coughs> with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The devil's whole function is to destroy the simplicity of everything that God has for you. We're told today that the Bible is really a hard book to understand. You're told today that the Christian life is almost impossible to live. We live in a day and age where I've never seen God's people so confused. We're living in a day where I've never seen God's people so without power in their lives. Save people. We're living in a day where uh, that most of God's people have no clue of what God wants them to do. And yet, that was Paul's greatest fear. That the devil would come in and destroy in the minds of God's people the simplicity that is really in Christ. And that's what the devil's done. Years ago, I heard a great message out of Luke chapter 21, and, and I preached it many, many times. It's a great little outline. And it's basically a three-point outline built around uh, God for God's people. The first point was simply be not deceived. And the man talked about how the devil's out to deceive us. The second point was be not disarmed because of the fact that the devil wants to take away from you the word of God that God has given you and put you in a world of confusion. And the third point, which I thought fit in very well for where we're at today, was be not deceived, be not disarmed, but also be not discouraged. Let me tell you something, folks. I don't care what anybody says, and I don't care how black it is and how hard it is and how, what the devil has done, even if he has uh, had a great hand in corrupting the minds of God's people from the simplicity that is in Christ. There is no reason why you cannot have all the things that God wants for you to have in your life. The judgment seat of Christ, there's many aspects to it, but the main aspect is simply this. God has a plan for your life. And God is going to reward those people who live on this planet with all the things that we have, with all the places we have to go, with all the things that we can get involved in, all the things that the devil throws at us to get our focus off what God really has called us to do. God has a plan for you and I, and God has a judgment seat of Christ in its lowest common denominator for those who figure it out and then spend the rest of their life giving God what he died for them to give him. Bible talks about a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12. Now, I know that, that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, and it talks about the relationship that we have with Christ to our earthly marriage. And the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife, that's the church, hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. There's a verse that tells you that the bride, the church, has made herself ready. She's now been to the judgment seat of Christ. The rapture has taken place on this earth. The tribulation is going through its seven years. But we up in heaven now are standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and giving an account of the plan that God had for us. I don't understand what God wants you to do. I fully understand what he has me to do. 
But I don't know what he's got for you to do exactly. I see things in your life. You come, you grow, you get involved in the ministry. And it's very obvious that most of you, if not all of you, have very much to offer to God. And we get the idea sometimes that, that, that God is looking for perfect people. God is not looking for perfect people. God knows that you and I are not perfect. You know, we get the idea so many times, well, I don't know that I can really, because I, we think we've got to be perfect with God before we can do something. And that's not true. God doesn't ask you to be perfect. Now, he does ask you and me to be as holy as we can be and to abstain from some things that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. But perfect? No. God knows that you and I cannot be perfect. That's why when he died on the cross and we went back to heaven, he gave us the Holy Spirit of God and he gave us the Bible that we can live as holy as we can within these imperfect bodies in this imperfect world. But I'll tell you what God is looking for. And this is what I look for. I don't look for perfect people in the ministry because I know they don't exist. I look for people who are not perfect, but people who are consistent. That in their lives, they want to have the consistency of being and doing what God wants them to do. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's going to bat a thousand. Everybody, everybody struggles with issues in their life, and we all fail at times. That's being human. And God understood that. If you understand his dealing with the nation of Israel, you'll certainly see from the book of Psalms that God understands that concept. But God wants us to be consistent. I told you last week that our idea of the judgment seat of Christ and the rewards and how we get them and our inheritance is completely out of whack with what the Bible says. The longer I live and the, the more I see the church age the way that it is and God's people the way they are, the farther we absolutely get away from the very basic concepts of the Bible. I think Luke chapter 17, and I've never given you this verse, I got this verse many, many, many years ago, and I'll be honest with you, it changed my whole perspective. I've never preached on it. I don't think I've ever given it in Bible study, uh, but it's something that certainly at this particular point in time, when we're looking at the judgment seat of Christ and contemplating all of its long-range ramifications, you need to understand. It's one of the most incredible verses in all the Bible of how God views what we do. And he says in verse 9, God speaking, Christ speaking, he says, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? And then it says, I trial not. Now, trial is an old English word that means I think not. In other words, what he's saying here, there's no rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. There's no millennial inheritance for the things that we are supposed to do. We think we're going to get rewards because we go to church. I told you last week. That's our job is to be here. God died for the church. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of the cells together as the manner of some is. We think we get reward for reading your Bible. You're told to hide the word of God in your heart. We think we get rewards for coming to Bible study or coming to church or winning people to Christ and, and, or, or helping people or the giving of your finances or, or all those things that go along with that. Those are things that once we get saved, we're supposed to do. I told you last week that I don't really expect anything at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm in a very, very precarious situation. And I knew that when I got into this vocation of being a pastor. Because it would be hard for God to give me anything because I get paid for what I do. Now, I know that there's always over and above things, but uh, I don't even look to that. 
I understand that great reality of that verse is that we don't get an inheritance based on the things that we do in most cases. We don't get an inheritance because you're here today, or you get rewards because you're here today, or you read your Bible last night. Those are the things that we are supposed to do. But I will tell you throughout this message that there are some things. There are some things that, uh, that you need to understand about how you do get a millennial inheritance. And that's what I want to help you with today. Now, in your Bible... There's two definitive passages on the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to look at one this week, and then we'll look at one next week. The one today will define the whole concept of the judgment seat of Christ. It will give you much information on where you stand. It will show you the basic things that you need to do and understand to ensure that you do get a millennial inheritance. Now, there's two warnings in your Bible. And they both deal with you getting an inheritance and a reward. The first one is in, is in 2 John chapter 1, verse 8. And in that great passage, it simply says this. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, the first warning is look to yourselves. You know why? Because the greatest enemy you and I have against God in our life is us. And we like to blame our problems on everybody else. In most churches, the pastor gets blamed for everything, whether he does it or not. Sometimes he deserves it. Sometimes he doesn't. But I've learned over the years, the bottom line is simply this. The only one we can really blame for your lack of being spiritual or not being where you need to be is yourself. You can't blame somebody else for that. And I hope that you see that. And that's why the Bible gives the first warning, look to yourselves. We're famous for looking to blame it on everybody else. But he says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought. And then the second warnings in Revelation chapter 3 verse 11. It simply says, behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what thou hast that no man take thy crown. The second warning is not to let somebody take that crown from you. Now, this is why I tell you single people, be careful who you marry. Be careful who you marry. Uh, if you're plugged into the Word of God and you're really trying to grow, you need to be careful with who you, you, who you hook up with. You need to be careful who you become yoked to. Because uh, the idea in the Bible is to save people like oxen. And uh, oxen were yoked together. And uh, they yoked together because they were supposed to pull the load together, to work together. And so it's very, very important to understand (coughs) that the Bible says, let no man take your crown. You marry the wrong person or you get hooked up and you could, in many cases, if that person isn't the one that God wants you to have and hasn't went through the process of spiritual growth and proved themselves, as the Bible says, you can kiss your whole millennial inheritance away. How many times over the years I've seen that happen? You can get your crown taken by a pastor. Somebody who doesn't teach you the Bible the way that it needs to be taught. Somebody who doesn't teach the Bible and lay it out and give you everything that you need to have every chance you have. A church can take your crown. Some of the people you hang out with can take your crown. You know, in 1960, and I, you know, few of us remember the 1960s. Most of you were not even born at that point in time. But in the 60s, we had, a, we had a, a group called the hippies. 
And uh, there are no hippies anymore. They all died out with the brontosauruses and the transsexuals. But anyway, but but the. The, 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 the hippie movement was a movement that was organized against any established anything. They hated the government. They hated, the, uh, uh, they hated anything that the government did. Back then, everybody dressed, you know, common people dressed a certain way, and they were ultra-radical in their dress. Their hair was very long. They didn't wash they wore clothes with peace symbols on them and love buttons and all of those things. Free love was the key word back then. And it was, uh, it was uh, in fact, it was just this week, I do believe, that um, we celebrated the anniversary of, the, of what was been common to become known as the Kent State Massacre. And I think you saw it in the paper this week if you're paying attention. That happened all the way back in about, what, 1968, 1969? I was in the Army when that all happened. And what happened was that they were burning down, the hippies were against everything, the war in Vietnam, the government, uh, marijuana flowed freely. Uh, it, was a, it was an incredible time. And they would go into campuses and they would burn down the buildings, they would, they would tear down everything they could because everything that, everything that was a fixed thing represented the establishment to them. And they were anti-establishment. And I remember I was just a young guy, and I always didn't always figure the thing out, but I learned some lessons through it. They would burn cars and turn them over in the street. They would burn down buildings. In fact, the massacre at Kent State was based on a, a crowd of people, and they had to call out the National Guard. And the people were pelting the National Guardsmen with rocks, you know, and, uh, and, and, and throwing things, bottles, and spitting on them. And they would, all kinds of terrible things. And they surrounded these National Guard guys on a little hill there, and, and somebody in the National Guard panicked or whatever, or thought their life was in danger. So when one guy opened up, they all opened up, and they killed, I don't know, seven or eight college students. Oh, boy, you'd have thought the end of the world came. Well, it did for eight people, but anyway, it, it, was, it was toted from one end to the other. And it, it, it unleashed riots everywhere. And I, and I learned something out of that. I try to learn something from everything I see in life. I think that there's a lesson in everything. And I learned something. I, I learned something that, that people that wanted to, to tear down and destroy things. In my generation, it was the hippie movement. They were anti-establishment. They wanted to bring down the government, to bring down society. They wanted some, some goofy little, you know, all of the music back then. The Beatles music, the Yellow Submarine. Strawberry Fields Forever. You know, that's all drug-induced music about the world that they all wanted to live in. And, you know, I remember back then, as I watched that years later, I thought to myself, boy, there was a great lesson in that. Because those people were anti-establishment, and their whole life, they wanted to bring down the establishment of this government and this country. And I noticed that people back then, they wanted to tear things down but they never wanted to build anything up. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, you know what, that is a character of human nature for me as a Christian. So I've stayed away from people, Christians, unsaved people, who their whole life wants to tear things down that God is doing. Because I learned a great lesson. People who want to tear God's work down never build anything for God. People who want to tear people down, they never build anything for God. So you need to be careful that no man take thy crown. And there's absolutely no reason, based on our study, 
why there is any reason for you not to have all that God has for you. You've heard me say it many, many times. God replaced himself with three things. He replaced himself, first of all, with the Holy Spirit of God when he went back to heaven. In the process of time, he gave the word of God. And in the process of time, he established the church. Those three things did biblically the way God wants them to be done is everything that you need. Now, let's read our text this morning, uh, the first definitive passage. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is going to be your first definitive passage in the Bible. And then we'll break it down. And we'll see how far we get, because I want to get you out plenty of time to go eat. I've been practicing my Chinese all week. Verse 9. Got it down. For we are laborers together with God. Now, I know as sure as somebody's going to go out of here and accuse me of speaking in tongues. That's just the way it goes. For we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by the fire. Know ye not that which are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ, and Christ is God. Now, Father, help us today to take this passage and learn some great truths about the greatest day in our lives. We know now, Father, that there's no special holy days for Christians, but there are two days in the Bible that every Christian should look forward to and understand. And help us, Lord, as we come through Romans chapter 14 to see the reality for all of us to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to kind of break this down, and if you want to follow down and put these in notes and then put them into your Bible, you'll really have a good breakdown of how this thing works if you, if you, if you do that. Now, the first thing it says here is the fact that, uh, that uh, we're laborers together. And uh, that's a great concept because that shows you that the number one thing about the church needs to be the unity of the body. There's many things in the Bible that God uses to describe us as the church. Now, we've got probably 170-some people here today, maybe more than that, and, uh, and we're all individuals. But uh, as a church, uh, the Bible says we ought to all be one. And that's the key, unity. That's why it's called a body. We've all seen people who are not very coordinated. We've all seen people who don't have very good coordination skills. The standard joke is I can't chew gum and walk, you know. It's, you're not coordinated. 
And we've all seen examples of that, and, and some people uh, are, 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 are less coordinated than others in some things. Um, I, I, I watch, I think, I, I marvel, I really do. I think of all the sports that I marvel at, uh, it's basketball. To watch some of these professional guys, or even the college guys, do the things that they do. I mean, and they make it look so easy. And you talk about somebody who has absolutely coordinated themselves, um, you know, beyond belief. And then the team that plays together, I mean, they all coordinate. You know, it blows my mind. A guy dribbling a ball and everything's happening so fast and he's coming down and he doesn't even look. And he throws the ball that way knowing that a guy is going to be there to take the shot. I'm sure they practiced that all day long, weeks long. Um, But it looks like it's so easy. It just flows like some kind of beautiful music that just is playing. Everything just orchestrated at the right place. And the team that works together that way, and I'm sure it's, I know it's the same in football and, and baseball, but it's more apparent in basketball. Watching those guys go up and, and dunk the ball. Man, are you couldn't me. I, I, I can't even touch the rim at the highest I jump. If you want to see my lack of coordination, just watch me play basketball sometime. I have no coordinative skills in anything in sports much, but basketball, absolutely not. And uh, I'll tell you, but when you watch somebody that, that, that does it and does it well, it's all fluid. It's just all moves. Everything is just like it's orchestrated. That's the way Christianity should be. Your body is that way. You're coordinated that your brain cells, you know, sends messages to your hands and your feet and what you want to do. And you coordinate it. You walk, you run, you do this, you do that. Everybody is coordinated to be able to do that. And, of course, that's what the body of Christ should be. Pastor gets the vision. He keeps the goals before the people. Everybody does what they can on whatever level they are. And they begin to just work the ministry. And you grow through that. And uh, that's just the way it works. Some of you can't disciple anybody yet, but you can clean the building. You can, you can help with this. You can do whatever you can do. And you work in and grow into that aspect of it. So the first thing he says here, which is the first key, labors together. And then the second thing he says in verse 9. He says, you're God's husbandry. God's husbandry. Now, a husbandry in the Bible is a man who tends a garden. He takes care of the garden, makes sure it grows properly. The example in the Bible will be, the first one anyhow, would be Genesis chapter 9. Remember that back there when Noah came out of the ark down around verse 20? The Bible says that Noah began to be a husbandman. What did he do? And he planted a vineyard. So a husbandman in the Bible is somebody who takes care of of the garden. And that is a reference to you and I. We help others grow. And we tend to our vineyard. Our vineyard right here is this church. You know... Today is Mother's Day, and I know that, and, uh, you know, uh, everybody probably in most cases across the city and maybe across the country uh, is is preaching out of Proverbs chapter 31 about the virtuous woman. And everybody likes to take the virtuous woman and, and apply that to a mother, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't because it obviously fits that passage in an inspirational application. But you do understand that that passage in Proverbs chapter 31 uh, is not just only talking about our mothers, it's also talking about the church. In fact, that's the primary application. That virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31 is the church, and it's the picture of what you and I should be doing. 
And it comes down there and it talks about how she's virtuous, her price is far above rubies and all the things that go along with it. And when you get down to verse 16 and 17, it talks about her gardening skills. And it shows you that this virtuous woman is a husbandman. Because it says in verse 16, she considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. To me, that, that was always been an incredible passage for me. I always liked verse 16. Once I understood that whenever, you, whenever I, God called me to build a church, I had to look at it like a garden. And I had to realize that when you plant a garden, and I'm not good at planting gardens. I'm better at doing churches than I am ever planting gardens. But, I, but when you plant a garden, you've got to prepare the soil. You've got to get the rocks out of it. You've got to get everything furled out and get everything that is conducive to growth. And then you've got to plant the seed. Then you've got to water. You've got to have the right amount of sunshine, right amount of water, right amount of time of the year. And everything just kind of goes. And if you do everything right, pretty much grows on its own. And I remember as a young man, and when I saw verse 16 where it said, She considered a field. I knew from Matthew chapter 13 that the field is a picture of the world. And I know in that great parable over there in Matthew chapter uh, uh, 13, it says that Jesus Christ bought the field. We know the great verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I began to look at that and I began to realize the great concept that was developed out of that. When God came down and sent his son, he died for the whole world. In other words, he bought the field. But you notice when it talks about that virtuous woman, when it's talking about me and it's talking about you, it doesn't say the field, does it? It says a field. You see, God never asked me to run the world to Christ. He never did. He never asked me to do anything uh, on that scale. But what he did ask me to do was to consider a field. When I, back in 1976, when God opened the door, really the end of 75, when God opened the door for me to come to Kansas City, God used those events and brought me to a place and brought me here, and God gave me a field. But I had to consider that field. And then I had to make a decision based on my considering that field, and that was whether to buy it or not. And sometime in my life when I saw what God wanted me to do and God developed me and brought me to the place in my life where I understood what God wanted me to do, I looked at my vineyard, my field, Kansas City, and I decided to buy it. I didn't buy it with money. I bought it with the same thing that God bought the whole field with. That was the intensity and understanding that this is my field. You've got to decide in your life at some point, ladies and gentlemen, where your field is going to be. It may be here. It may be in this church. God may take some of you young men down the line and some of you young ladies and give you another field someplace else. But she's considered the field a field and buyeth it. And that is the first concept. The attitude that what God has called you to do, you have to buy it with everything you got. Bible called the church over there the pearl of great price in the New Testament. He gives the story about a, a man that went sinking goodly pearls. Remember that story? And the Bible says when he found one pearl of great price, and that pearl of great price is you and me, the church. That's why this virtuous woman here, her price is far above rubies. You know why? Because it's a pearl. 
And when you come to that point in that story in the Bible, he says he findeth one pearl. And he, he, he gives everything he has for that pearl. Once I understood that when Jesus bought the whole world by giving everything that he had in his attitude, his mind, to buy it, once I realized that my job was to consider a field, and I understood that my field was right here in Kansas City, and I was to buy it, then I bought it with all the intensity that I could muster just like Christ bought his. I take my vineyard right here as a husband of this church just as serious as God did when he did the whole world because I understand that that's what it takes. She considereth the field. You and I are a husbandman. We help others grow. We tend to our vineyard right here in our church. It says she considereth the field and buyeth it. And then it says with the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. The fruit of her hands. You know what? you got to build a church. I tell you all the time, this is like a vineyard. It's like a, it's like a garden. You don't just go out and throw all the seeds out and then you just hope they land and grow. No, no. One seed at a time. You put your finger down in that hole, put it in and cover it up. You move on down. You plant those things one tree at a time and you have to build a church one person at a time. It's a vineyard. The reason why pastors want to deal with mass evangelism and don't want to deal with anybody and don't want to work with anybody and won't spend time with their people teaching them the Bible and won't do the things that really need to be done in somebody's life is simply because they've not bought the field. They may be a pastor, they may have a church, but they never considered the field and bought it on the same level that when Christ bought the field. You don't build churches by, by doing great things and, and building big buildings. You've got to get down to the nitty-gritty. And this is what most young men will never understand, the real inside of the ministry. A husbandman, he keeps the vineyard. Long before you got here, some of you got here, we were clearing the ground. We had to clear out the rocks. We had to get all the, all the stumps out. We had to get everything that made this thing conducive to spiritual growth. We had to get all the elements that will hurt the growth of a, any vineyard. And then one by one, the Bible says, with the fruit of her hands, she plants it one tree at a time. One tree at a time. One tree at a time. Verse 9 goes on and says, it's God's building. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, a familiar verse says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price. You see, in the Old Testament, God did his work through the literal temple. In the New Testament, God does his work through you. Your body now is the temple. This is why when we studied the aspect of, uh, of, uh, of our liberty in Christ, this is why the Bible says that we're to exercise temperance. We're to, we're to understand our liberty. We're to do things in moderation. We're to abstain from some things that give the appearance of evil. We're to balance in our life. Our testimony is the most important thing that we have. Because there's somebody always watching our lives. I think one of the greatest examples in the Bible, and this is really my pattern that I've used. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, and 8, you don't have to turn back to it. Uh, you, you, you have uh, one of the most incredible studies of when Solomon built the temple. And you realize that when he built the temple, in those chapters there, you have everything that you need to build people. You know it took him seven years. It took him seven years 
It took him seven years to build that temple. When that, at the end of that seven years, that temple was ready for all the world to come to it. And, I, and that's a pattern if you don't know that. I look at some of you that, that came in, when we, our church, what, almost seven, seven years in January, somewhere in there. We've been, we've been here. And uh, yet I look at some of you that, that came in uh, right at that particular time. And maybe six months, a year later. And watched how you have taken advantage of the things. Some of you figured it out and got, your, got, got it all worked out in your mind. You saw what God wanted you to do in your life. And you began to put those things in your life. And here it is, almost seven years later. And you can actually see, you can actually see where you now are, are able to understand things on a greater level than you were when you came in. You know why? Because it's a pattern. You give me a young man or a young lady who will give me their undivided attention. I will do whatever needs to be done in their spiritual growth and go after it on their own the way that they need to do it. And you give me that person for seven years, and at the end of that seven years, I'll show you a temple that is ready to go to the world. took Solomon seven years to get that temple ready for the world to come to. You give me that same seven years and give me somebody's undivided attention, male or female, that want to do what they got to do and will do it the right way. I guarantee you in seven years' time, you will be ready to take it to the world. That's a pattern. And boy, when you come in chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, it's just laid out for you just as clear as what you need to do. This, then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did that. And it even tells you when you get to that point what not to do. Oh, it's an incredible pattern in the Bible. It's a pattern that I use. Verse 10 says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, another build thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Two concepts in this verse. The first one is that we're to be a wise master builder. The second one is that we're to take heed how we build. You know, there's a great illustration of this in the Bible, in the Gospels of Luke. And again, you don't have to turn to it. You can just listen to all these, write them down, look them up later. But there's a great story in Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 12, that's always been one of my favorites in all of the Bible. You know why it's my favorite? It's my favorite because it has a parallel passage to it, but they don't match. Now, I, I don't know. I, I, I love things like that. I, I, you know, I don't know what you occupy your time with. I know some of you love video games and some of you, you know, you do all kinds of things for recreation or relaxation. And I'm, I'm glad for it. But for me, the Bible to me is, is, is this aspect of it. I call this level seven or eight when it comes to the Bible. And it's, it's my favorite things to do in the Bible is to find passages that don't match. Because I understand, you know, uh, when, when you have verses that are both are correct, but they don't match, then there's some underlying reason that you've got to find it's usually a great Bible truth why they don't match. And, and, and to me, uh, the great fun time in the Bible when I don't have anything else I've got to do is to get some of these passages that, that, that seemingly uh, don't match and yet take the time to find out how they do match because when you have two parallel passages that almost say the exact same thing, but there's a difference in them. Before I went into ministry and left Ohio, my father and the Lord, Mel Sabaka, uh, you know, when I got ordained, uh, you know, they, they, 
you know, most churches, when they ordain somebody, they bring them in and grill them, you know, for 48 hours, you know, torture them to find out what they believe. I've never done that, and that really never happened to me. But I will tell you that my father in the Lord, he was very, uh, he did it, he just didn't do it all at one time. And I remember we went out one time, and we were, we were driving someplace together, and uh, he gave me, he gave me 10 places. This was right before I came to Kansas City. And he was always doing things to me to, you know, we had about, uh, I've given you, talked about those 10 questions that they, that, uh, that uh, I asked people, you know, that were asking me. That if, if you know these 10 questions and you can lay them out, you know the Bible. But he understood a great truth. He understood the fact that just because you know the Bible, that doesn't mean you know the Bible. And I'll never forget, he, he gave me 10 passages that probably were the roughest passages in the Bible that were, that were similar, but they were different. And he said, you know what? Humor me. Go ahead and take a week, take your Bible, and next Sunday, bring me these ten things down and show me how, how you got the answer to them. He says, here's two passages that it doesn't look like it's the same thing, but it, it, it is the same thing, but it isn't. And there's a reason why they don't match. Boy, I'll tell you what, you talk about a challenge, but it's things like that, that that ignited my excitement about the Bible, because I know everything in the Bible does match, and when you see something that doesn't match, there's something there. That's Luke chapter 19, because, and in fact, that was one of the passages that he gave me years and years and years ago, and he used to call this level seven and eight in Bible study. He said, this is where, this is what separates the men from the boys, and I, I understand that. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, is the same story as Luke chapter 19. But they're different. And yet, when you reconcile the differences, it's an incredible study, which most of these things are. One of the things that you'll find different in Matthew chapter 25, uh, in this story here, in verse 14 on down through here, that you'll find that the theme in Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's 52 times in the book of Matthew you find the phrase, kingdom of heaven. And you'll find that when he tells this story, which I'm going to tell you in a moment, the money here is talents. And talents is a Jewish monetary form of money. But when you go to Luke chapter 19, the story there dealing with the kingdom of God. 44 times in the book of Luke, you find a reference to the kingdom of God. And the money here is not talents. The money here is pounds, and pounds is Gentile weight, English. And when you look at those two stories, they're almost exactly the same, except the one book has the, deals with the kingdom of heaven, the other book deals with the kingdom of God. The one book deals with a Jewish monetary system, the other one deals with a Gentile, in particular, English monetary system. Well, when I broke it all down and worked it all out, I basically found that you have two systems of the millennial inheritance. In the one in Matthew, dealing with the kingdom of heaven and the talents, you have the system that shows you the Jewish inheritance. When you come to Luke chapter 19, story with the kingdom of God and all that thing down there and its pounds, then you have our millennial inheritance and what it's based on. And it was from that concept years and years ago, I later saw this concept in 1 Corinthians 3 about being a wise master builder. From the day you got saved, 
You're to be building on a foundation in your life. And the Bible says that you're to be a wise master builder and you're to take heed how you build. This building is simply based on what you invest your life in once you've been saved. Now, the story in Luke chapter 19 is is a great story. Here's the story. It's a story of a man. This man will be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he comes down here and he finds ten servants. Now, that's another key that when I started to put it together that caught my attention because I know that ten in the Bible is a number of the Gentiles. I know already that Noah was the, called the father of the Gentiles, and in his genealogy, he's the tenth from Adam. I knew that the first Gentile kingdom was found in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, I knew that, uh, you know, uh, that there, uh, when, they, when Genesis chapter 24, when, uh, when they went to get a bride for Isaac, he took ten camels. Uh, I know that the, uh, the last Gentile kingdom found in the book of Revelation is represented by ten toes of Daniel's image. I know that the Acts chapter 10 deals with Gentiles, Romans chapter 10 deals with Gentiles, and John chapter 10 deals with Gentiles. So the moment I saw that he had, he had 10 servants, and it's the kingdom of God, and I knew what we got here. And so what he does, he comes down here and he takes these 10 servants, now this is important, and he gives each servant one pound, and then he goes back to heaven. He comes back at a point in time, and he now wants to see what these ten servants have done with what they have, he has given them. The one guy who had one pound says, hey, you know what? I made great investments. You gave me one pound. I got ten pounds back for you. The other guy says, you gave me one pound. I made some great investments. Here's five pounds for you. The other guy says, you gave me one pound, I went and buried it, and I don't have anything invested in it, but here's your pound back. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. When God saved you, God gave you ability, God gave you talent, God gave you a job, God gave you a family, God gave you people in your life. And he gave you everything that you needed to take what he gave you and make good investments so when he comes back, you can stand there and say, you gave me one, I got ten for you. Now, the thing I want you to see here, and this will eliminate any problems that some of you may have. Because we always like to blame our situation on circumstances. Look and see here, my friend. Everybody got the same amount to start with. There's no reason for you not to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and have everything that God, the only reason why you will not be there is because of the fact you will not take and make the investment with what God has given you. You've invested in your career, you've invested in your family, you've invested in your business, you invested in everything out there except the reason that God gave it to you to invest it in. It's the investment of your life and my life. Some people take the abilities, everything that God gives them, and make good investments. Most do not. But that is the key. That is the key. You and I are to be a wise master builder. How many of you who have 401ks, or you have an investment, or you have some kind of, you have some kind of down the line for your retirement, you know, that you put money back and you were with some investment firm? Would you just give it to anybody and just say, I'll do what you want to do with it, and every year you put $100,000 in, you know, and every year uh, it goes down and it doesn't go up? 
and you find that you got some guy who doesn't even care about your investment, that you're, he, just, he doesn't care as long as he gets his 10% off the top, he doesn't care about making you any money, would you stay with that guy? When you get 65, 70, 75, and you try to retire, you call up your financial guy, and you say, what do I got? He says, you ain't got nothing. Why? Because you gave it to me, and I made bad investments for you. Well, that's the way it is with God. He gave everybody in this place, everybody in this place, everything that you need. And the moral of the story is simple. It's the investment of your life. You've heard me say it many, many, many times. There's only two things in this world worth investing your life in because they're the only two things that are eternal for all of eternity. One of them is the Word of God, and the other one is the souls of men. And the judgment seat of Christ will simply be in one format. God gave you a talent. He gave you a pound. He gave you the abilities you have, and he expected you to make good investments and bring a return. Everybody gets the same amount to start with. You make good investments in your life as a wise master builder. Everybody starts with the same amount of grace, the same amount of faith. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What does that mean? We get the idea that it means that Christ comes down and strengtheneth. No, no, no. Read the verse. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It's not God that strengthens you. It's the thing that you do for God that strengthens you. You remember your story of Moses, the great leader of God's people, the greatest man in the Old Testament before the law who represents uh, the nation of Israel and God uh, before the, the law came in or up to the law and it, or up to the kingdom where it gets established, God gave him the law. And you know what the Bible says. The first time God met him and God had a job for him to do, he couldn't do it. He was scared to death to go before Pharaoh. He didn't speak well. He didn't, he didn't look well. He didn't do anything well. And his self-confidence level was down to the, the bottom. And he, he's making all kinds of excuses to God. And he says, how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? What am I going to do? What abilities do I have? I'm just an old uh, sheep herder. How in the world am I going to go up before the most powerful man in the world? You know what God asked him? He says, well, let's think about that. What are we going to do? Oh, I know. What do you got in your hand? And he says, well, I got a shepherd's crook. He says, well, then we'll just take that. You know that shepherd's crook is what he used to bring the plagues down? You know that little shepherd's staff that he had in his hand is what he used to turn the water to blood? You know that little shepherd's staff that he had in his hand is what God used to bring all the plagues down on the greatest nation on the face of this planet? You know what God will do? God will start with what you've got in your hand today and build it from there. He doesn't care what it is. Maybe all you can do at this time of your life is, 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 is rearrange the seats. Maybe all you can do is come and, and, just, uh, and you just give a testimony. Uh, just help these young gals or whoever or help somebody, encourage them. But you've got to start somewhere to make the investment. You can't just throw it in a corner someplace or bury it like this guy did. And then when the Lord comes back, dig it up and say, hey, the investment of your life starts with what right now today you have in your hand and the attitude of your heart. 
Boy, I remember my father and the Lord preaching a great message out of Moses' life. When he'd come down through there, you heard me say it many, many times. He used, I heard him say I could hear, close my eyes and hear him preaching it. When Moses went before God and he says, I don't, I, I don't have the ability to do this. Like some of you think. He says, I'm not able to go before Pharaoh. I'm not, I'm not able to do these great things. I don't have the ability that anybody's going to listen to me. I'm not able to get all this done. God said, I'm not asking you if you're able, Moses. I'm just asking you if you're willing. Because if you're willing, I'm able. And we'll start with whatever you got in your hand. And that's where you make your investment. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Verse 11 says, No other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of your temple, God's house, will simply be the day you got saved. And the rest of your life, you will make good investments or bad investments, and you'll build on that foundation, good or bad. Let me ask you a question. What if every day of your life, when you woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to work, there was somebody on this planet somewhere that every day of your life put $1,440 in your bank account. And that would stay in there for the next 24 hours, and you could keep it all and spend it all as long as you bought and spent all of that money. Well, I guarantee you, knowing us the way I know us, we wouldn't lose a dime. We'd buy everything we could. We'd stick it away everywhere we could find to. Well, let me tell you something. Every day of your life, every morning when you get up, God has deposited 1,440 minutes in your bank account of your life. Every day of your life, you have 1,440 minutes that you spend some way, some shape, some form. Making wise investments. Now, verse 12 says, the rest of your life, after you're saved, you should be a wise master builder, and you build three things on this foundation. Three simple things that I talked about last week, that if you will take these things, you'll develop the right attitude about it. You'll get the right concept on it. Your millennial inheritance will never be sure, and no one will ever take it from you. You'll never lose it. Your attitude of not uh, what you do for God, but basically why you do it for God. You know what the first thing he says? He says, build on this foundation gold. Gold. Now, I don't have to tell most of you, and most of you know this, that gold in the Bible represents the deity of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament was overlaid with gold. You'd had all the tabernacle furniture. It was made of wood. But then it was overlaid with gold. You know why? Because the wood was a picture of Christ's humanity, and the gold overlaying it was a picture of his deity. Why, gold's the highest standard on this planet. I mean, uh, years ago, we used to have Fort Knox, and Fort Knox was the standard for the U.S. dollar, how much gold we had. In the 1950s, the Illinois Society of Architecture uh, took a look at the, at the temple uh, back in the Old Testament under Solomon. And there was a saved man there, and he, he did a study on it based on the dimensions, based on the size, based on everything that was in there in 1950. That's 60 years ago. And he said that the net worth of the gold in that temple 60 years ago was $171 billion. 60 years ago. I can't even imagine what it would be. You get on the, you get on the news, or, and you watch the commercials. 
And there he is on TV, Gordon Liddy. Buy your gold where I buy mine. Everybody wants you to invest in gold. Everybody wants you to invest in gold. Many people do. Because they think that when the whole thing collapsed, that that's going to help them out. You think that gold will always be worth something because it's never been worth nothing, so therefore you're going to invest in gold. Well, i got news for you. Revelation chapter 3, the Bible tells the Philadelphian, uh, the Laodicean church that the investment we ought to be making is gold tried in the fire. But we'll never get it. We'll never get it. There's no higher vile wish system in this world than gold, and gold represents the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says build on that foundation, the first thing is gold, it's talking about get to know who he is. Know who God is in your life and know what he thinks. We, we, we have no idea of what it, we talk about knowing God. We don't know God. We, 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 we talk about all kinds of spiritual things, but yet our, our actions, the way we do things, it only displays that we really, we have the talk, but we really don't understand. We really don't know who God is. I, I think it's in, incredible that, you know, my, one of my favorite books in the Bible for me as a personal Christian is First John. Because I think First John really represents what my relationship should be as a Christian. And yet, every time you pick up a study on the first book of 1 John, and every time you find a, a commentary on 1 John, they'll tell you that the, that the theme of 1 John is love. I don't know how many times I've heard that. I don't know how many times I've been places where somebody did a devotion or some pastor preached on 1 John, and he says, now you know the, the theme or the subject of 1 John is love. And I've never understood that. I, I, I'm going to probably quote this wrong, but the last time I went through 1 John, I think it was 27 times. Now, 1 John's only got five chapters in it, and they're not very big chapters. It's a very short book. At least 20-some times. I think it's 27. But at least 20-some times in that little book, you find the word knowing. 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 You know why? Because you don't just wake up in the morning and love God. You got to learn how to love God. It's not natural for you and I. You know what? That's why people don't keep coming to church. I've seen it all my life in ministry. I've seen people come to church for two or three weeks. They get saved and and then they show up for about another month and then you never see them again. I've seen people come to church on get saved on a Sunday morning or Sunday night, never come back again. You know why? Because the guy preaches some message or you have some evangelist in and he tweaks some emotional thing in you or you're going through something right now and it's a, it's a, it, it moves you so you come down and you, you make a pretense of getting saved and because you're in this problem you're in and you get up and you go back out and as soon as your problem is over and you're feeling better, you don't care about God anymore. That's human nature. I've told you many, many times about this time I had strep throat for six months. And that's because every time I went to the doctor and he gave me the medicine, as soon as I started feeling better, I quit taking the medicine. And sometimes we just use Jesus Christ and the church and salvation as a feel-good concept. That's why we have divorces in America. People get married today and they don't know the person they marry. They fall in love with what they think the person is. And you never want to fall in love. When you fall in love, it's real easy to fall out of love. The only true concept of love in marriage is to get to know that person and know what you love about them. Because when you fall in love, you fall out. 
When you fall in love, you know what? Down the line someplace, you know, you fall out. Because it's not real. It's not based on anything. It isn't based on knowing that person. It's based on the fact that you fell in love and now a better deal's come along so you fall out. It's, you fall in love and then when the tough times come, it's easier to bail out because you never really knew what you loved about that person. How many times have I heard somebody say, I don't even know why I married him. And I just look and say, I understand. I know why. I know why. Because you never knew him. If you, if, how many times I've heard, if I knew now about him what I knew then, if I knew now about her and the way she was, I would have never married her. Well, why didn't you find that out? Well, he told me it was the ex's fault. Oh, okay. We don't take the time to learn. We don't take the time to know. The next thing is silver. See, it, it compounds itself. The first thing you build is gold, getting to know who God is. The next thing is silver. And silver in your Bible is the price of redemption, isn't it? And that's, that represents what God did for you and me. Numbers chapter 3, verse 47, Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, talks about the, talks about the redemption money. It's silver. In Matthew chapter 26, Christ was, in verse 15, Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. In, 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 in Genesis chapter 37, verse 28, uh, Joseph, the greatest type of Christ in the Old Testament, is, is sold for 20 pieces of silver. He's a picture of, of you and uh, Christ going for you and for me. Oh, there's a good one. There's another one. That's one Mel threw at me. Now, Joseph's the type of Christ. Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. How come Joseph is only sold for 20? That's one to work on a while. That's one of those ones he threw out back there now that I think about it. It's a simple fact. We don't do for him because we have no clue of what he's done for us. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, somebody asked a question and I, about the crucifixion, and I forget where it was at that point and what we're talking about, but I ran you back to the Old Testament and Isaiah and Job and Psalms, and I showed you that the real concept of what Christ did and what he paid on the cross is not found in the Gospels. It's found in the Old Testament. I told you that you could almost systematically walk through the Old Testament and you could almost find hour by hour his crucifixion laid out for you and find out exactly within that time frame what's going through his mind. You know, we get such a shallow concept of Christ's death on the cross. It means nothing to us anymore. But when you understand those Old Testament passages and you understand the real price of your redemption and you begin to con con uh, contemplate what Christ did for you. I'm telling you, when you got saved, the only three things you got to build on that is gold, silver. When you get to know who he is, and you get to understand every aspect about him, and you get to know who he is, what he is, how he thinks, and then you, you fall in love with that, and then in the same time, when you get to know that, the next thing you do through finding out who he is, you can't help but find out what he did for you. And I want to tell you something, folks. The third one is precious stones. And in the Bible, precious stones will be people. 
It said in Proverbs 31 that the virtuous woman's price was far above rubies. That's a precious stone. In Song of Solomon, the church is likened to a black pearl. That's a precious stone. In Matthew chapter 13, it was the pearl of great price. That's a, that's a precious stone. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Here it comes. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day. They are the Lord. See that thing? Why? When I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. See that thing? God's got jewels that are likened to people. Now, the standard teaching is on it, and it may be true or may not be true. But in the Bible, we'll look at it here in a few moments, and one of the crowns you can get is a soul-winning crown. Based on Malachi chapter 3, it's been taught for years and years and years that at the judgment seat of Christ, the crown that you get has a, has a jewel in it for every person you ever had an influence and went into Christ. It's incredible. Precious stones. Precious stones are people. Precious stones represent the, the people that God has put in your life and my life. And that's the format. You cannot understand who God is. I mean, the, the biblical process of spiritual growth that leads to maturity and millennial inheritance is simply gold. You get saved. Lay that foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ the day you got saved. The rest of your life, you build upon that foundation three things. Gold, getting to know who he is. You cannot get to know who he is without getting to know what he did for you. There's the silver. And you cannot, you cannot get to know who he is what he did for you without telling somebody else about it. There's the precious stones. It's a process. See, that's the simplicity that's in Christ. Nothing complicated about it. You give me your life. You take the Bible, the principles in the Bible. You get into a program in your life that is conducive to spiritual growth and you define some things and then you build on your foundation gold get to know who he is every principle i lay out everything we talk about and then find out what he did for you and then take that and you go tell somebody else what he did as i've said many many times most of god's people are really good of telling other people what God will do for them. But they're not very good of telling other people what God has done for them. Well, they ain't doing nothing. But notice also in verse 12, the three alternatives. The three things that are good that you ought to build in your life are gold, silver, precious stone. Now, you've got to understand, everybody builds something. The key here is wise master builder and take heed how you build because you are going to build something one way or the other. One of the greatest things I ever learned about God is there's no neutrality with God. There really isn't. There really, we like to pretend there is, but there really isn't. And I think that's one of the hardest realities for God's people to grasp, and I don't think most of them ever grasp it. Sitting here this morning. You know what? You're either in fellowship with God or you're totally out of fellowship with God. You're not kind of in fellowship with God. You're either in or you're out. There's no twilight zone. That purgatory thing. That's Catholic. That's not Baptist. 
You're either in fellowship with him today or you're out of fellowship with him this morning. And what determines it is one little concept in the Bible. Thou shalt confessing to him in 1 John chapter 1, 9 and him forgiving you your sins. It's just that simple. Jesus said one time, he that is not with me is against me. Now take that one and work on it for a week. And I know what we like to do. We like to come up with our own interpretation of with me. Well, that may work for you, but it won't work for him. His whole concept of with me is different than your concept of with him, I promise you. There's no middle ground with God. There's no neutrality with God. You're either building gold, silver, precious stones, or the next part of that verse is you're building wood, hay, and stubble. You see, wood, that's dead trees. Hay, that's dead grass. Stubble, that's dead wheat. All three of these things are pictures of not only unsaved people, but the unsaved world itself in the Bible. And you're either going to build gold, get to know who he is, silver, what he did for you, and precious stones, the people that God's going to put into your life, or you're going to build wood, hay, and stubble. Dead things for dead Christians. Dead things for dead Christians. Verse 13 says, Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day, at the day of Jesus Christ, shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, fire in the Bible, of course, most of you do know this. Fire in the Bible is always a picture of God's judgment. It's the way God purges something. We have a lot of God's people today that have a tough time with the concept of hell. They don't understand why God would even have a hell. They, 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 we've lost that whole concept. And to me, the concept, you know, when we talk about hell is a terrible concept, first of all. And I wouldn't wish anybody to go there. The first thing I try to do when I try to talk people about the hell fire and going to hell and burning in the fire, first thing I try to show them in Matthew chapter 12 is that God never intended for them to be there in the first place. Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God never intended you and me to be there. He never intended any man there. God is not willing that any should perish. We talked about that Thursday night. And this concept of hell, it, it, takes a, it, takes a, it takes a worse rap than it really is. It, it, it's like the fact that God is just, God is a vengeful God, so he's going to torture you down in hell. No, that's not the concept, folks. You've got you to get the biblical concept. Fire purges things. Don't you understand that? Fire purges things. One more time. Fire purges things. At the judgment seat of Christ, when your works come up, when you put fire to gold and silver, it just purifies them. It brings the dross to the top and it purifies them even more than they're already pure. Fire always purges something. Now here's the problem with hell. It's simple. You have a, inside your body, you have a soul. That soul is eternal. That soul is sinful if you're unsaved. And that soul needs to be purged. When Christ died on the cross, we looked at it a couple of Thursday nights ago, didn't we? They brought hell to him on the cross, didn't the devil? Remember those passages back there where he talks about my bones were burnt black with heat? You think he was just too close to the fire? Where it talked about 
my bowels boiled. When he looked at his father and he cried out, my God, my God, how, why hast thou forsaken me? When he cried out, I thirst. Those are things a man in hell says. You know what he did on the cross? He took on his body the purging of your soul. Now understand this. This is very important. When he was on the cross, his death on the cross, and him going to hell on the cross for you was the purging of your soul. Once you ask Christ to come into your heart and save you, he takes his death and he purges your sinful soul and your soul now has been purged by his fire on the cross. Stay with me. You don't get saved. What's God going to do? When your body's gone and you have a spiritual body that's your soul, that thing's eternal. Your soul is not going to die and go away someday. Your soul's eternal. So what has God got to do? What has God got to do to keep that sinful soul from polluting everything out there in his future plan? You know what he has to do? He has to do it. It demands being done. He has a lake of fire. That lake of fire is eternal. It's eternal fire. You know why he has to have eternal fire? Because he has an eternal soul. And that eternal soul has to be purged. But there's only one way it can be purged now, and that is to be purged eternally. Because it can never be purged. So he puts it in an eternal soul, an eternal fire, and it burns for eternity. Because that's the only way God can purge something that can never be purged. It's just simple. He's not somebody up there saying, ah, who can I throw in hell today? No, no, no. He died on the cross so you wouldn't have to go. He died on the cross and, and took the fire that you was deserving for you and put it on his own soul so it wouldn't have to transpass to you. But when you reject that, your soul's eternal. He's not going to let you float out all through eternity and, and, and cause the problems that was caused back then. Not this time. So he takes an eternal soul, puts it in an eternal fire for an eternal purging. I told you last week that that fire at the judgment seat of Christ is going to try your works and my works. That's the same fire that burns in hell. That's the same fire of God's judgment. God is going to try our works. And the Bible says of what sort it is. He's going to sort it out. I told you earlier, you don't get any reward for reading your Bible, winning people to Christ, building churches. What you get rewards for is not what you do. What your rewards are based on is why you did it. He's not going to ask me how many people I won to Christ. He's going to ask me why I won them to Christ. He's not going to ask me, did I build a nice church? He's going to ask me why I built it. He's not going to ask you what you did, what you did. He's going to ask you why you did it. Motive. Attitude of heart. There's going to be men who have built churches that are monstrosities, who won more people to Christ and all the things they did. They're going to lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ. You know why? Because they did it for the wrong motive. Of what? short it is and the fire is going to try every man's work it's going to purge what you did and if it's not gold silver and precious stones if it's wood hay and stubble the fire of God's judgment is going to just take that thing next week 
I'm going to talk to you about the judgment seat of Christ as the terror of the Lord. We're going to see the bottom line of where this thing goes. And then the week after that, I'm going to come back and show you, give you all the answers, the six questions you're going to have to answer at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, the great example of this is back in your Old Testament in Genesis chapter 19, if you don't know that. And it's a picture of a saved man that the fire takes everything he has, and his name is Lot. The Bible says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned with them an overflow, making them an example unto those that after should live godly. Here it comes. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelleth among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteousness soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Picture of any, most Christians today. Bible says he vexed his soul with the filthy conversation of this world. You know the story? He's a picture of a saved man. God was going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, but he went down to get Lot out because Lot, the Bible says, was a righteous man. I don't know how he was righteous, but God saw him as righteous and went down to get him. And God got him out when the hell came down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with a brimstone and the fire, just like the lake of fire. Lot got taken out. But look what he lost. He lost his home. He lost his, half his family. He lost everything he had. He lost his possessions. He lost his wife. He has two daughters left, and yet what happens to that? He goes into a cave, and they have incest. And he, he has two children, Ammon and, 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 and Moab, who down through the history of the nation of Israel become Israel's greatest enemies. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of your life and my life at the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says, I talked about it, that he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Didn't stop with Lot. Lot never broke the circle. Lot's a great example that changing geographical locations don't solve your problems. Somebody gets mad and goes to another church and says, well, I don't like that church. You didn't solve anything. That story's a great story that tells you the problem wasn't getting Lot out of Sodom. The problem was getting Sodom out of Lot. That's our problem. 